Hello and welcome to my podcast. It's been a long time since I introduced myself and the show. My name is Wayne Kaiser, and with help from experienced performers and from my family and from you guys, our community of friends, together we make Ballycast. It's much more than just another podcast. It's a call to action to go out and enjoy sideshow and performance arts day by day. I guarantee it will give you memories for years to come, the good times, the hard times, the friends, the unique experiences, and, above all else, coming out of each of these moments with a smile. I try to share positive motivation and happiness, plus some performance advice derived from my years of working in entertainment. And even though time has superseded many of my suggestions— you, I, all of us are just normal people pursuing a not-so-normal dream to make other people happy. So come along on this crazy journey and be a part of our amazing and supportive community and live each day making moments that you want to remember one smile at a time. This is it. This is the real thing. You've heard about it on the radio and seen it in the papers. Ten big acts for the price of one ticket. Behind this curtain, you'll see the Fiji mermaid, the giant red bat, the six-foot man-eating chicken. They're all real, and they're all on the inside. You'll see the Ethiopian glass here. folks what are you waiting for admission is free to Ballycast, the podcast of the carnival sideshow and variety arts you're just in time we're gonna have a free show we're gonna bring out the strange people the weird people here they come now watch the doorway you'll see what they do you'll hear what they talk about they're all alive on the inside get your ticket and come in Ballycast presents news and interviews with performers and showmen some important words of warning. This podcast is not family-friendly. I'm not even thinking about it. So listen at your own risk. The performances and stunts described are not safe, even for experienced performers. Never attempt them without the direct supervision of someone who already performs them. Please use your common sense. And if you don't have any, stop listening now. Here's your host, Wayne Kaiser. Welcome to Ballycast, episode 145. Ballycast is brought to you free by Blue Ridge Entertainment, publisher of books, CDs, DVDs, and more for showmen, performers, and fans of the sideshow, carnival, and variety arts. The feature segment of today's show, a new book you just gotta read. Uh, this is uh, called Immersion Journalism. It's been practiced for over 100 years in America. Nellie Bly did it in the 1800s. Also, news and so very much more, wherever it's gotten to. Your guess is as good as mine. It's Ballycast. Here we go. Keep your hands and arms inside the car and remain seated until the ride comes to a complete stop. Regarding anything I say in this podcast, don't ever take my word for it. Always research what you hear. Don't let anyone think for you. Most people can barely think for themselves. So much craziness out there. Shouldn't we begin with something brief but calming? Here's Claude Debussy performing his own composition, Claire de Lune, as he played it in 1913 on a reproducing piano, a device that recorded player piano rolls that copied his intonation and dynamics, not just the notes.
Website of the week. Kurt Gunz at FamilyShowPro.com published a good thought starter and action guide for the time of the virus. Called Reclaim Your Business, it is remarkably pithy. At first I said, 10 pages and that's all there is? But before I closed the PDF, I said, well, there it is in a nutshell. He also offers a PDF guide for family show performers called Booked All Year, and it's well worth reading. What does he get out of it? I'm not quite sure. I couldn't figure out how to sign into his website, but I am getting the PDFs in my email. And now a word about one of our most popular products. In our online shop at goodmagic.com, here's one you'll use. From 1948, the full set of directions for making a blade box. The classic blow-off that earns dollars by the hatful. The blade box lines them up with dollars in their hand and sends them home happy. Why would anybody pay an extra dollar to see a magic trick? It works like this. Now, Sheila is going to step behind the curtain for a moment and remove her costume. We're not doing this to be lewd or crude. She must remove her clothes to be able to perform this act. Here, honey, just hand out that costume. I'll fold it up nice for you. And now, she will recline in the cabinet, and I'm going to close the lid. Notice that the lid has openings for 13 steel blades. I'm not going to cut this beautiful young lady, because as I insert each blade, she is bending twisting and contorting her body in and around every one of these blades of steel, just like a snake, just like a rubber band, she can bend and stretch as these blades threaten to sever the most delicate parts of her body. And now, I'm going to give you a chance to come up on stage and see for yourself. Sheila has agreed to expose herself to your gaze, so you can come up here to see how she does it. You're going to see how her amazing body can twist around these razor-sharp blades. You're going to see the glint of the cold steel against the texture of her skin. Sheila feels that exposing her secret and her body this way is worth one dollar because she's paid only through your curiosity and your generosity. Just hand your dollar to the man at the foot of the steps and come up and see this beautiful little girl in the state she is in now, unashamed and waiting for you to view her. Digitized and carefully restored in digital PDF format for just $4, visit our web sales pages at goodmagic.com for a real piece of carnival history or a great working blow-off that still plays today. You can go there directly or use the link on the podcast page. Hippopotami Cannot get on a bus Because one hippopotami Is two hippopotamus And if you have two goose That makes one geese A pair of mouse is mice A pair of moose is me a paranoia is a bunch of mental blocks and when Ben Casey meets Kildare that's called a paradox when two minks fall in love with all their so different, bless my soul. Has it ever occurred to you that the plural of half is whole? <laughs> A bunch of tooth is teeth. A group of foot is feet. And two canaries make a pair. They call it a parakeet. 
paramecium is not a pair. A parallelogram is just a crazy square. <laughs> Nobody knows just what a paraphernalia is. What is half a pair of scissors? It's a single sis <laughs> with someone you adore. If you should find romance, you'll pant and pant once more. A new book takes us on a year-long trip by bus, train, hitchhike, and apparently camel caravan from Carnival Lot to Carnival Lot by my guest today, Michael Sean Comerford. Tell us more. <laughs> I'm up for this show, man. I've been when waiting for a long time to be on this show. Very gratifying. I, I have a, a big 40 listeners. You might sell one copy. Well, we better. Well, I think you know the story, but for your listeners' sake, before I left on my year in traveling carnivals, I thought I was just going to one carnival. I'm a lifetime journalist. Uh, I, I've won a lot of awards. I've been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and I wanted to transition out of newspapers into book writing. And uh, I had this idea. I'd spend a year in carnivals, and I wanted to go where there was a dramatic difference between income levels. So I went out to Silicon Valley, where they have the richest people in all of history, and they have uh, among the poorest. I was very worried about fitting in and worried about what I was going to run into. And I came across your site, Ballycast and uh, Carnilingo, and... I studied the carny lingo like it was the Bible itself. You know, I just felt like I would know the, the industry a lot better by reading your site. You spread such lingo around too liberally, you'll probably stand out like a sore thumb. But when I got to Butler, I ran into some guys that really did have the lingo. Butler uh, amusements in California. They used the word Donaker for the bathrooms, and they were used church call for meetings on Sundays for what you know what's coming up in the coming week, what we can expect at the next jump. And uh, they used a lot of the Carney lingo. And when I got to Chicago, by the way, there was actually someone who spoke Carney. So I didn't I didn't know a ton of this stuff before you, before I was introduced to, to it all by you. It's a lot like pig Latin. I can't figure it out on the on the you know on the run either. Yeah, but it was an amazing year. I went to uh, I started out working there in San Francisco, so I worked in California. I worked in ten states: California, New New York, New Jersey, Chicago, Alaska, Minnesota, Oklahoma, Texas, Georgia, and Florida. And in Florida, I was in a freak show, but they didn't let me on stage because they didn't see the inner freak in me. Should have done more drugs, I guess. <laughs> How was the traveling for you? Well, what happened was at that first uh, carnival, I worked for Classic Amusement and for George DeLivo. And uh, George is a former pro wrestler, wrestled on the same bill as Hulk Hogan in San Francisco. Pro wrestling, as you said in, on your, uh, owes a lot to the at athletic shows of the early carnivals. And uh, he was sort of in that tradition. Well, when he fired me, he said, Mike, you have a stupid idea here because the shows in America, the big ones are over half Mexican and you don't speak Spanish. And secondly, none of these owners are going to hire you. They don't want a writer they can't control and their staff. I worked for Vince McMahon, he said, and he owned those writers. He knew what they were going to write and there's no upside for me. So you're out. You're 60 bucks. That's more than you had when you came. 
he wasn't being the bad guy. You know, he, he had yeah. a lot of compassion for me, but he was just laying out the truth. But I realized he was really laying out what I should do for the rest of the year. One, I should get to know these Mexicans and maybe go down to Mexico, which I did. I went down to Veracruz in Tlapacoyan for nine months a year. The men leave, and it's almost a ghost town. I went down there, and I saw the people I worked with in California. But anyway, George says, uh, here's 60 bucks, more than you had when you left. And I said, well, you know what? Maybe I'll work for more than one carnival this year. I don't know how I'm going to afford it, but maybe I'll I'll work in carnivals coast to coast. I had a bicycle with me at the time, and I I got on the bike, and almost as an afterthought, George goes, well, you know, Butler's setting up in Oakland. Well, I'm getting on the BART, which is their elevated train, and I got on it with my bike. I went right down to Butler. I bicycled onto their lot. Someone yells out, you looking for a job? And I said, yeah. And he says, go over there, talk to this guy. And I went over and talked to one of the bosses, and, and I was hired on the spot. When you were talking about the traveling, I'm living on carnival wages. So... I don't know how I'm going to get from one carnival to another. And I met a guy at Butler at that first, that actually the second carnival, but the real first carnival. He said he was hitchhiking. And I go, well, if they're still hitchhiking in America, I can hitchhike too. And so I ended up hitchhiking 14,000 miles across the United States. I looked it up on the internet. I talked to all the hitchhiking groups I could in America. I believe I was the number one hitchhiker in America. Trains, and, uh, planes, and automobiles. Yeah. And I, I took a train from Chicago out to uh, San Francisco, so that's the train. I uh, took a bus through Mexico, but everything else was hitchhiking, and it was an amazing stuff because I'm, I told their stories. Every time I got into a car, I said, look, I'm a writer. If you have a great story, I'm going to film it. I'll put it on my blog. But the owners and none of the carnies along the way and showmen and entertainers uh, none of them, and freaks, none of them knew that I was writing. Because, as George Olivo said, you won't be able to do this project if everyone knows you're a writer and if you're, they know you're blogging. But the people in the cars all knew. And uh, so I had great stories in these cars. They were like confessionals. And people were telling me stories that they wouldn't tell their, their closest friends. They obviously were... They were telling stories that they were afraid other people wouldn't believe. The stories that they knew were going to be wind up on your blog. They knew. The, car, the, the people in the cars, they knew that was going to end up, I was going to end up writing about it. And then the carnies, uh, the people in uh, carnivals, did not. And uh, I am in touch with several of them right now. And, and, of course, that's an awkward thing. You just don't know how they're going to take it for, for two reasons. One is perspective. When you say things, you think you're saying things that you're not really saying. And, and then also with the, the, other the way the other person hears you is different. I have a lot of training taking down exactly the right words, but I was worried that they might not see it that way. But I'm in touch with several of them. So far, no one's objected. Uh, this is uh, called immersion journalism. It's been practiced for over 100 years in America. Nellie Bly did it and, uh, in the 1800s. Um, well, with that caveat in mind, do you think you're well-remembered, kindly remembered? When I left every carnival, one of the things that was a surprise uh, along the way was how when you left a carnival, people all looked sad because they felt like, you were going to a sucker job. Why would you ever do that? You should be here with us. You know, you're leaving our family where you're leaving the, this great life. It's, it's poorly paid. It's, it's hard work. It's sometimes it's all night work, 48 hours of work sometimes straight. Yet in San Mateo, I thought I was going to be a journalist the whole time. I told the foreman on the unit boss, Hey, look, um, I'm I'm quitting. I'm going to go to L.A. I think there's some holes in L.A., and I'm quitting. And he goes, ah, crap. So anyway, everybody seemed to know it. People came up to me and said, hey, look, 
you made a mistake. Go back, beg him back for your job because Butler pays on time. Oh, you'll you'll never get a place like Butler again. And they were all begging, not all of them, but a lot of them were begging. Well, anyway, church call comes up on Sunday because you don't you don't leave before Slough. Slough was that night. I told him I'm leaving afterwards, but the uh, unit boss gets up and he says, "All right, before I tell you what about." Redwood, which is the next uh, jump. I wanted to tell you that Mike, cowboy, because I wear a safari hat, he's not coming with us. He's going to another town. He's going to L.A. And uh, we hope he finds a good other family down there. And then the whole crowd erupted. I mean, really, the Mexicans, they started throwing their hats around. And some of the guys in the in the carnival who who really uh, were not that nice to me when I was working with them. We were, you know, we're really frustrated with the new guy, the greenhorn on the, on the crew. They also cheered. They were all going crazy because they were going, oh, yeah, we, you know, uh, Mike is going, oh, you know, he was a great guy. I realized at that very moment, and thank you for asking that question because it's pivotal to the whole book, which is, at one point, I stopped being that immersion journalist who was observing everybody else. And I became, I realized everything they feel, I'm going to feel. I'm now part of this story. So I started writing about, in this book, about my emotions. When I felt lonely, I felt lonely. When I felt separated from my daughter, who was seven years old at the time, going on eight, and I was calling her and feeling like a bad absentee father, which, you know, Pretty much I was. Um, well, well, was there anything they felt in that back and forth between the people uh, that worked there, the, wherever there was, that they were dying to tell you? It's one of the things I put on the uh, back cover of the book, and it uh, shouldn't be surprising, but for some reason it stops people in their tracks, like everyone else. People in carnivals are looking for love and meaning in their life just like everyone else. But they're on the road, and uh, they're looking for it here and maybe somewhere else down the road. So I put uh, my line there for the back cover was carnival people looking for love and meaning in their life, and the answers seem to be always somewhere down the road. Of course, the old phrase, uh, I love you, baby, but the season's over. <laughs> yeah, I met a, a priest who said that he still, he, he had married people on carousels three times around and divorced them at the end of the season for a carny marriage and a carny divorce. And uh, he said it was real. I thought it was long gone, but, you know, that's another thing I, I mentioned at the beginning of the book also, is that I let everyone tell their own story their way. And by that I meant... I know that people are not telling me the whole truth all the time. They're telling the stories of their life the way they tell it to themselves or the way they tell them to their friends. And uh, sometimes they're exaggerating. And who doesn't exaggerate to themselves? Who has a perfect memory? Some people were clearly lying to me. A lot were exaggerating, but I've been known to exaggerate myself. Well, everybody processes the events of their life through the filter of their inner monologue. And the longer they have to do it, the longer they have to refine it. There you go. You have to, you have to read the book. You have to read it. Just that line there shows me that you will get this book. Which, of course, I'll post a link to. Yes. I might even buy it. You never know. You have but, to. Uh, what surprises did you encounter? There's one part of the whole book where you're experiencing things in real time. And I had a blog. When I went down to Mexico, my boss in Texas said, well, if you're going down to Mexico, don't go up into the mountains because they're lawless. And I said, okay, I'm going up into the mountains. He goes, what? I go, yeah. And I got another problem. I lost the names of the guys in Butler that I want to meet. They don't know I'm coming. I've lost their names. I've lost their telephone numbers. I'm just going to their town, and I'm going to look for them. And I did. I, I got there, and I looked for them, and, and I found them. And, and so these were all 
surprises that happened to me in real time. And in the blog, if you were reading it, you would say, oh, my God, is Mike going to die next week? I mean, he doesn't have any of their names. And I blogged right from Tilapacoyan. How is he ever going to live through this thing? Because Tilapacoyan is fairly dangerous. And uh, then what surprised me is that when I went back and looked back on the year, perspective changed things, and I saw different uh, aspects of different events. I mean, when I talked about the separation from my daughter, carnivals are not just figuratively families, like, well, this is my carnival family. They're real families. Like the boss has a daughter and a son in, you know, working with them. Uh, Carney has his wife working with them. So the, the ownership and, and the, the crews are, uh, you know, usually a lot of times related. And so the amount of intertwined families that are involved in carnivals was a bit of a surprise to me. They're family operations. That was one of the big surprises anyway. What were your favorite things to do and what challenges did you rise to and find that you learned from? Let's see, I'll leave favorite for the second part. But one part is I was surprised at how confrontational I can be because some carnies wanted to fight me. And uh, I'm tall. I was thin at the time, but I was 54. And I, 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 I don't want to fight anyone. And uh, mostly I'm a journalist. But um, I had to be tested. So one thing you can't do in carnivals is back down. And I didn't. And so I'm, I'm rather proud of that. But I didn't. I also avoided every single fight. And I think it was almost in every single carnival. Somebody, somebody threatened to bust out all my teeth, kill me, one guy. I was surprised at the physicality of that on the one hand. But on the other hand, um, why wouldn't you expect that? These are people that make a living with their hands. And why wouldn't they fight with their hands? And uh, what did I like the most? I got to tell you, one of the things is the differences uh, between carnivals. The fact that I went to all these different carnivals made it a, a year that no other carnies ever lived before. Now, other carnies might have gone to 10 states, but they didn't go to 10 states with 10 different carnivals. So I had roommates in Alaska that were native Alaskans, Eskimos, the variety of people. It was just... Uh, for a person that loves to listen to people and likes to get the best stories out of people, because I believe everybody has a story. And it's really, if you can listen hard and if you can get them to trust you, uh, you can glean the best. Some people will tell you, I have no, I'm not an interesting person. There's nothing interesting about me. But if you prod and you prod and you listen and you listen and you Nine times out of ten, you can really get an incredible story out of these people. And so the variety of people that I met was astounding and, and, and beautiful and inspiring. And that was the favorite part, the variety of people and the good hearts. Man, they would work hard all night. They would sometimes play hard all night. And they had these kind hearts. How many women did I meet along the way? I don't know, but a lot who were foster mothers. <laughs> they would say, well, you know, I got like 15 kids. 15? Or, you know, six, two of them are mine. Uh, they're all mine, but two of them are biologically mine. And then I looked around at one point and I realized, hey, there's a lot of kids that were raised in foster homes out here, juvenile homes. But there is so much caring. These people are all caring for each other. And so that was a surprise and a delight. When you say prod and prod people to tell their stories, did you feel that that was in any way manipulative? Yeah. And I must say that I regret some of it because... At the very beginning, I said in my blog, if there is a question that's too personal to ask, I vow right here, right now, to ask it. Because my nature is not to ask it. 
And as a journalist, I had to ask these questions, but it always seemed to come up with the story. But here, I could see myself going the whole year and just not, not prying into people's lives. And one of the things that was interesting to me, Wayne, this is amazing, though. I mean, I ask about childhood a lot because we're in carnivals. A lot of it is based, focused on children and their happiness. So I would ask carnival people about their own childhood. And I watched, I can't tell you how many of these guys cried when I asked them about their childhood. And guess who, you know, got a lot of the crap, which was their kick-ass dads. A lot of them got kicked out of their homes by their kick-ass dads. A lot of them dropped out of high school or grade school and went away to the carnival. And they were traumatized. They were happy with their decision. They loved the carnival. But I watched these people relive their trauma. It made for a better book. I will say that. I skipped. I didn't tell some of those stories, but I told them in general, which is I watched men and women cry because of their childhood. And part of the reason why they were working in carnivals was to help other children have the childhood they wouldn't have or they hadn't had. But once you read it, you're going to see several references to that. Several people saying, my childhood broke my heart. I had a hole in my heart. And I am now, every day, I go out there and I try to make sure these kids have a great time. And some of them were repeating the problems of their their fathers and their mothers. And and they weren't perfect people, but... I was dredging up some, some deep, deep stuff. And uh, I was aware of treading on personal ground. And I tried and to. I should this, point so. out that on the Amazon webpage for your book, there is at least one excerpt that tells the story about you almost bashing a guy's fingers and he threatened to kill you. Yeah. I call him Rose Dog. His real name is it was not that, but he was referred to by at least a couple guys as Rose Dog. And Rose Dog, God, uh, he was one of the guys that hated my guts. And I lead the book. The book starts with him because the very first slough with Butler. I wanted to work with the Mexicans, and I had done pretty well. But the Mexicans were wrapping up, and the Americans were uh, still early on in the tearing down of the carousel and Rose dog yelled, you know, get over here. So I went over there, but man, something about me, I looked like someone he hated once or something. I don't know what it was, but he hated me from the sight of me from the very first moment he saw me. And I got up there and I'm relatively big guy, six, five. And uh, so I got up into the truck, and I'm lifting those uh, beams with uh, their sweeps with uh, Rose Dog. And uh, because of my height, I wasn't raising it the same pace as he was. I was raising it a little too fast. And uh, he was having his fingers at pinch points. So I'm sorry. He was doing it. We were both doing it incorrectly. I was going up a bit too fast, and he shouldn't have had his fingers at pinch points. And... uh, he smashed his fingers once, and he threatened to kill me, and then, then he smashed his fingers the second time, and he threatened to kill me, and everyone was waiting for the biggest damn fight you ever saw in your life because Rose Dog played football for Grambling. He was a defensive back. Uh, he, you know, those are the most violent of all, of all the defensive guys, and he's an ex-con. He was out on parole for beating his wife. Let's just say it must have been bad because he got six years for it. So... As a cop reporter, I can tell you no, very few people get six years for uh, spousal abuse. He must have really done something awful. And so here's a very violent guy who wanted to kill me, and it was twice I smashed his fingers. And we bent down for the third time, and you can't make this stuff up, but I smashed him three times in a row. And I was ready for him to come at me. I was ready. And... And I say so in the book. I say, look, do not fight fair. You know, that's, that's stupid. Do everything that he doesn't expect. And uh, I had heard that he uh, had been in a car accident. And 
may have broken his neck. So that was what I was going to go for first. I was going to rip his, rip his head right off at the neck. And I had it all planned out. And he came right at me. He puffed up. He walked right at me. He had promised he'd kill me. The whole crew was watching it. And by the way, I said, if I was the crew, I'd want to see a fight, man. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't going to win. He outweighed me. And he was 34 and I was 54. And that's another aspect of this story is that I went out as an older man. But he wasn't going to like it. And I'm not going to tell you what happened. But uh, uh, that's part of the, the beginning of, this, of the story. Right. Just like the blog, you didn't know, you didn't know if I was going to get killed in Mexico. You're not going to know now if I got messed up or how badly I got messed up in, in, uh, in Oakland. And the, uh, uh, to use the polite word, the customers, what Marks. did you think about that, them? Well, I ran some games that I could, uh, let's put it this way, and I do not reveal anything in the book except that I could make your day or crush your heart. So I ran both sides of the uh, main sides of the carnival. I mean, concessions is a big part, and sideshows are a big part. And I, did, I, wasn't, I wasn't really in sideshows. I was a ticket taker in the freak show for the world of wonders. I, uh, I did feel guilty about some people who came to me and uh, wanted to win. Maybe they did or maybe they didn't. You're going to also have to learn that in the book. And these neighborhoods are very tough and very poor. And I had some kids come up to me, and they were little con men. I mean, they were two little boys. They were about, I don't know, seven, cuter than you, you could never get, cuter than these two boys. And one of them came up, and he had his eyes were, he's, he had tears coming down his eyes. And he said, Mr., we're too poor. We got to get on a ride. Like, we just want to get on a ride. We don't have any money. And then the other kid, he's trying to cry, but he can't cry at all. He's not a good actor. They're both conning me. And I go, if I get fired here in Chicago, this, this whole year might end. I've done all this for nothing. I can't be giving away free rides. So I said, uh, I would love to, kids, but I can't. Well, I wrote about it, Wayne. I wrote, I wrote about that, too, because those kids went around to every real carny and asked them the same question, and every real carny knew that they were getting conned also, and they let them ride. And I looked at that, and I go, well, look, man, if any other kid wants to ride for free, and I think that it's because they, they're poor, you let them ride, Mike. You let them ride, you know. I had to learn that. As I found, that's the the secret of navigating that sort of request. I really wish I could. I'm afraid I can't or I'm not allowed right. or whatever. Right. I've heard so many people just say, hell no. What an outrageous request. I wish I could. No. <laughs> but I, it's it was stupid in my part. Just stupid. No one's going to fire me over giving a rides to kids that... They're poor. They were really poor. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm sure they're not thinking about it at all, but I thought about it. I was a real crumb. And I go, I know I'm going to have to write about this because you aren't walking through this year not making mistakes. And I made a bunch of them. So uh, did you see any of them as marks at all? Just plain old marks? Look, I tried to get into the head of, of some of these jointies who really were like pirates. Some of these guys, they, they were every bit like pirates. They, they, wanted, they want money. They're not going to leave a dime on the midway. And so I tried to get into their heads, and, and I tried to out-earn them, and I did. In the, in the State Fair of Texas, on the crew I was on, I was the top earner, according to the, the boss. And I had only worked a week and a half, uh, half of the carnival, at the foot of um, Big Tex. And the rest of the carnival, and that's, that's the honeypot. At the rest of the carnival, I was at the very end, and I was running a, a crappy game. 
Then they gave me the tubs of fun at the at the uh, feet of Big Tex, and I outdid everybody, every veteran, everything. I looked at people as numbers. There was two million people coming by me. Uh, it's hard to treat everybody like a, to visit with anybody. Basically, you are going. You're you're using your your skills uh, at speaking fast and your skills at uh, direction and misdirection and then going for the money and then moving moving them on and not visiting. Oh, I loved everybody I was meeting, but I, especially at State Fair of Texas, I knew that was a numbers game. And so I really went for it. Did you run any games that you knew were absolute scams? Yeah. What you think That's about what I was that? saying. I could make your day or crush your heart. You know, that's absolutely, I did that. I learned all the, I went up to, uh, I went up to um, Alaska to run, to work for uh, Claire Morton, the great Claire Morton, who's passed on since now, uh, since then, but uh, they ran Golden Wheel. They were evangelicals that were up there. And they said, well, you're coming up here. We don't uh, want any guys that ran games down in the lower 48 because we don't want any of them coming up here. And I say in the book, I list off all the con games, the gaffes and all the, all the Montes and, and so forth that you have on your uh, list for uh, carny lingo. What they were really saying to me was, everything here is going to be evangelical. And I said, look, I'm, I want to run rides and I don't even know all those tricks. But inside, I wanted to learn every darn trick that they have in carnivals. And I learned over half, I'll bet. I learned a lot of them. And thanks to you. Well, I came to that in a very strange way. I stole the original list and added on to it over time a lot. It shows. Knowing that is a good window into uh, any any business. And I bet you're glad you did it then and not now. So many shows being closed due to the virus. And I am in contact with several of these people, and uh, it's heartbreaking. They're going to square jobs and uh, sucker jobs, and uh, they hate it. Well, only for a while, I'm sure, but I saw a thing today. This is very much a mirror of the 1918 Spanish flu. Every damn thing that happened then is happening now, including spikes, second spikes, yeah. Third spikes, badly handled or well handled, and it didn't uh, it didn't quit until 1928. Uh, well, I must uh, I'm I'm going to give you a real quick one though. Something I discovered right writing the book. Carnivals we track here in America back to uh, the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, and I actually played Midway Plaisance. The very first Midway, that modern Midways played that very same place, and it's right down the center of uh, University of Chicago. So at that time, we were coming off the Gilded Age, where we had impossible wealth, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, everything, right? But we had the 1893 pandemic, here they are. The beginning of carnivals is the pandemic. The 1893 uh, World's Columbian Exposition also was the pinnacle of the fight over AC versus DC. That's Tesla versus Edison. So they had an incredible boom going on in technology, just like we have today with Steve Jobs and, and Gates, uh, Microsoft and Apple. And all these technology companies, they had the beginning of gas-powered cars, the very beginning of trains, outdoor lighting. All these technologies that were coming up, things like this, all these technologies were coming up in 1893, along with a pandemic. Then a depression, a Great Depression that lasted 10 years. Above all of those things, and I'm talking to you from Chicago, where we have racial problems, too. The 1893 uh, World's Columbian Exposition had racial problems because they were, they were not hiring enough uh, blacks and they weren't allowing enough blacks to come in. And so there was a, a boycott proposed by Ida B. Wells. They had almost the exact situation that we have right now. That is why I am, I'm optimistic for carnivals. 
is because not only did they survive it, but they thrived in it. And part of it was, and I believe, is their ability to adapt to technology and to move. So now we have, also, we have climate change. You know, there's talk about parts of Miami going underwater someday. Traveling carnivals will just go wherever the people go. And they'll be adapting to the new technologies. There'll be virtual technologies. There'll be drones. There'll be artificial intelligence. All these things are going to come along. There is a lot of love, and there's a lot of uh, family. There's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of people that find their life's meaning and, and lifestyle on the road and in carnivals. And I know people right now that just will never leave it because it's their life and, and they love it. They found what they love in life and that, that makes them lucky. And that makes me a square because I'm outside it. Well, Michael Sean Comerford, uh, you've got a great new book. Tell me the title one more time. It's called American Oz. It's an astonishing year in traveling carnivals at state fairs and festivals, hitchhiking from California to New York, Alaska to Mexico. And that's what it's called. It's on Amazon and in every store out there. Wherever books are sold. It'll be on your iPhone. It'll be on your smartphone. It'll be everywhere. I thank you very much. And uh, almost two in the morning. Have a great night. Thank you, Wayne. It's been a pleasure. I've been waiting to meet you for years now. So thank you very much. Hope I do you some good. Thank you. On the other hand, there are less ethical activities going on out there, and some, names withheld, have really berated me for tipping off the public about the worst of the carnival games. Paul and Jess have set up their own stall, offering amazing prizes from games consoles to widescreen TVs. This is the Razzle Dazzle. It's really simple. It's two pound a roll. I'll give you two to start. You win any of the prizes that you see here today, when you roll, whatever score you get, yep. we'll make points. So if okay. you roll a 41, you get a point and a half, like that. If you get 10 points, you win anything that you like. But today, it's two pound a roll. Go for right. it. It's just all in there, right? That's it. The game is simple. There's a cup with eight marbles. The player throws the marbles onto a board with lots of holes, each one randomly numbered between one and six. Paul adds up the total and compares it to a scorecard to find out how many prize points they've made. All the player has to do is win 10 prize points for a fantastic jackpot. So you've got 8 plus 6, it's 14. Yep. Plus 9, 23, 25, 29, 32. Now 32 doesn't win anything. I'll give you another roll. Go for it. Now you have a look over here, you'll see the points that you want to get. Okay, so that's uh, 35 plus 4. 39. 39 plus 5. 44. So 44 is 5 points. You're already halfway there. That's lucky, to be honest. That's really lucky to get so far, so, so fast. Stay if I've got another 2 pounds. Absolutely. Yeah. You keep playing, your points are good. As soon as you walk away, you lose. What do you want to play for? Well, that's 5 plays. We'll give you change back if you win ahead of time. So what do you want to play for? He's playing for this. A top-of-the-range games console. Go for it. Roll. A whole load of zeros, but then... 39, right? Half a point. Half a point, and you know half a point up. I think you should keep playing. The only way you can lose is to walk away. That's another £10. Yes, go for it. You got another five. Go for it. Let's go. Come on, buddy. You can do it. Now we got nine. Twenty-two. That's 29. No points again, but that's the magic number. Oh, yeah, yeah. The 29 does not add points. Right. It does add prizes. It does double, so it's £4 a roll after that. But you're playing for any two prizes you like on the stand. The Mark is now playing for the games console and a widescreen TV. But it now costs £4 a throw. It's 30, nothing for 30. Another £4 if you want to play. Come on, look at what you're playing for. You get five plays for that. It's what you learn up spending. <laughs> <laughs> What do you want? There it is. One and a half. So that brings you up to seven. Eight. You've got to pay again if you want to play. Let me tell you something. It usually takes somebody a lot longer to make five points. You make five points like that. Look at what you're going to win. Really. The mark has already spent 40 pounds. But by the sound of it, he'd be mad to quit now. 
Actually, the only mad thing is that he's playing this game in the first place. And here's why. This is the granddaddy of all carnival games and is the most crooked game you've ever seen because your chances of actually getting 10 points are completely nil. So it works like this. You throw the, the marbles into the box and then we add up all the numbers to see what the total is. So that gives you 44. And what do you get for 44? Five points. And you're halfway to winning your prize. The problem is, is it didn't add up to 44. In fact, it added up to something low, something around 27. But what I do is I miscount when I want to give you points and keep you interested in the game. If I don't do that, you actually make nothing on every single roll. But the psychology gets better because the prizes increase. For example, if you hit 29, that's actually one of the most common numbers you can get with a game. When you hit 29, they add a prize. You also have to double your investment. So even if you start playing for two pounds, suddenly you're playing for much more. And I keep doing this until I've got all the money in your wallet. The razzle is designed to be confusing. That's why there are so many marbles and so many tiny numbers. No matter where the marbles land, the chances of making a winning total are astronomical. The total will almost always equal zero points, or 29 to add another prize that they'll never win. This is the lucky ticket scam. It's a bargain. <laughs> Two pounds for a handful of tickets. Any even number wins. Wins a prize. These customers each hand over £2 for 10 lucky tickets. The rules of this game are easy. There's a big bucket and thousands of numbered tickets. Even numbered tickets are losers, odd numbered tickets are winners. Five winners equals a top of the range MP3 player. Alex counts out the tickets so they can rip them open and see if they've won. Ten. Odd ones are winning. I'm feeling lucky after my ticket. Yeah. Are you? 88. 57. That's an odd. That's a winner. Okay, we're going to put this over here. Straight away, these guys have picked a winner. In fact, everyone that plays this game immediately has luck on their side. Hey, there's one. So how many odd numbers are in there? Half and half. Even the most suspicious of customers is an instant success. Oh, right. Okay. Ah. Ah. Oh, odd. Excellent. Okay, two. Take on one of those or one of these. So far, so good. Everyone has got themselves a small stuffed toy or a water pistol. That's safe. No one can take that away from them. The reason this works so well is that the operator's got complete control of the game. He can let the marks win or lose any time he wants by palming in winning tickets. The tickets aren't 50% odd and 50% even. In fact, every single ticket in the bucket is actually an even number. They are all losers. The only winning tickets are actually in Alex's pocket. And the only time they enter the game is when he intentionally adds a winner to the pile. That's why he always counts out the tickets before handing them back to the marks. And the instant win is only to get them hooked and make them spend more money. I'll tell you what, I'll let you bank those if you want to have one more go, or a couple more goes. I'll let you put these aside. So if you get five tickets, you mean one of these uh, sunglasses? Jewelry. You're halfway there. So how many do you need to get to get one of those? You need to get three more. I love it. I don't know. Oh, okay. Give me another one. Seeing as they're so close to winning a star prize, the marks keep buying more tickets. Another, another digital camera. Uh, you need to get three more. And every so often, they tear open another winning number. You got another odd? Got another odd? Okay, two more to go, and you can well, win the. Uh... One more. One more. <laughs> one more. You sure? Yeah, yeah, one more go. But just as they get close to winning the big prize, oh, no. the winning numbers completely dry up. 70 open tickets, but no star prize. <laughs> Still, they're not walking away empty handed. They've won themselves a cuddly toy and a plastic water pistol. Total value, 65p. Not a great return for £14. In fact, Alex doesn't let anybody get enough points to win the big prize. But those stuffed toys are absolutely flying off the shelf. It may only be a few quid at a time, but this game can bring in more than £100 an hour. And at that rate, 
the only winners here are the hustlers. Games of chance and luck are all great fun, but you should only spend what you can afford. And remember that you're really paying for the entertainment value rather than actually expecting to win anything. If you think a game is crooked, just walk away. I would submit in my defense that the public is terminally stupid and will always be Mark's. There's been a mistake in my change. Hard, long last, an honest man. Want to return some money? No, I'm short. Don't brag about it. I'm only five feet eight for sale. Uh, I mean, I'm short in my money. No mistake, Rick. If I have to work, leaving the window. You're dishonest. Dishonest? Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. You cheated us. Sal, you impugned my honor. As my dear old grandfather, Lickbox, said, just before the spring of the trap, he said, you can't cheat an honest man. On the Midway, Secrets of the Circus, Carnival, and Sideshow, a book on CD-ROM by Wayne Kaiser. Ooh, that's me. Assisted by hundreds of old-time showmen and showwomen. It's all here, alive, behind this curtain. Lifelong carny and circus veterans told us the facts, and they're all here. This book is not a happy clown book for children. It's the real behind-the-scenes story, and parts of it are not pretty. What's in it? My Carney Lingo Dictionary, the most comprehensive compendium in print anywhere. The secret backstage talk of workers in the carnival and the circus is a great way to understand the inner workings of the carnival lot. The secrets of dozens of your favorite carnival games, honest and, uh, otherwise. Which are winnable and which are always rigged. Find out here. Twelve full-length books from archives all over the world, like Sideshow and Animal Tricks, a how-to book by Hereward Carrington, and Houdini's book on working acts. Carnival foods, those great tastes you can only get when the show is in town. Recipes for 16 great carnival foods like candy apples, snow cones, corn dogs, funnel cakes, elephant ears, caramel popcorn, and more. Circus and Carnival Humor, contributed by veterans of the traveling life. Plus our own amazing dark ride, the prizes, crazy things you try to win from stuffed animals to balloons, from plaster figures to plastic swords, a look at prizes of the past and links to wholesalers today. Carney's only catalogs, 538 pages in our own click-to-read browser. See the legendary Brill's Bible of Building Plans, selling plans for rides, games, sideshow acts, and much more. H.C. Evans Company offered honest and crooked carnival games, gambling equipment, loaded dice, and more. Hex Manufacturing Company sold prizes from flash to slum. Plaster figurines, blankets, and just in case you might need one, pistols from a very rare 1933 original. The late Slim Price, old-time carnival showman and moderator of the Freak Show Discussion Group, said... You have any kind of interest in carny or circus lore? This is a CD you must own. It's an awesome piece of work. I'm still finding stuff in it. It's a pleasure to read. Wonderfully written in an easy-to-read style. In close to 70 years of living and loving the business, I've never seen a better tribute and collection. Hundreds of rare photos in full color, plus many extra surprises. You'll be looking at this for days, and it will become a treasured part of your collection. Special website price $11.99, including U.S. postage. There's a link on the podcast episode webpage or go straight to goodmagic.com. Ballycast is produced by Wayne Kaiser for Blue Ridge Entertainment under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means you can keep it, copy it, share it with a friend, just tell them where it came from, don't change it, and don't sell it. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe at Ballycast.com. And please also see our web sales and support site, goodmagic.com. Visit us, link to us, subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, enjoy. Thanks for riding. Please exit to your left. Never give a sucker an even break or smarten up a chunk.